All right, everybody, welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. Uh, this is episode number 24. Super special week for me this week. We have a guest on the podcast, Mr. Adam Foss. Uh, he's probably going to get uncomfortable that I bring up a couple of his accomplishments. But uh, back in 2012, he was the youngest guy ever to do the Grand Slam with a bow. Uh, that's all four species of wild sheep, bighorn, desert bighorn, stones, and doll. And I could go on about the accomplishments, but I think the second one I want to mention is the Yeti book that recently dropped because I think those two provide a really interesting juxtaposition to why I personally wanted to interview Adam so much because you've got this like hardcore gritty hunter on one side, but then this like aesthetic and sensitivity of an artist on the other side. And it's like the combination of those two I found really interesting and he's being able to accomplish just some phenomenal stuff. And he's a fellow Canadian and it's rare that Canadians get their due. So to have somebody like him kind of really have the, sh the spotlight shone on him lately over the past couple of years, um, I'm just really grateful to have him on the podcast and we're just going to have a bit of a bullshit, talk some photography, maybe get some gear tips and yeah, just see where things go. So thank you very much, Adam. I appreciate you taking the time, brother. Thanks for having me and the outstanding intro introduction that I Hopefully it won't disappoint anybody after the big, I've got big shoes to fill based on that. Thank you. It's all right. I knew if I asked you to introduce yourself, you'd be like, I hunt every now and then and I take some pictures. And I was like, eh, <laughs> it doesn't really do it justice. So I'm just going to take this one. Um, I think a great spot to start would be the beginning. Now I didn't grow up. I kind of grew up in a hunting family. I'm from Ontario. We did like a yearly moose hunt. And didn't really do that after I was like 14 and then nothing again until my early thirties. So I'm kind of fascinated with dudes who grew up in it. So the fact that you kind of grew up in Alberta, right coast, close to the bow zone. I mean, your old man and your brother are legends in their, in their own right. Can you share a little bit about what that was like and how, how hunting became a part of your life or what did it just seem like it was always a part of your life? Yeah, it was always part of my life. I mean, we grew up, shooting, shooting bows as early as we could walk around, um, the long bows, those little Canadian tire red limbed, I think they're called like little braves. Right. Uh, that's probably not politically correct anymore. That's what they're called. They're these red fiberglass bows with black grips on them. We'd be shooting gophers and terrorizing skunks and everything that had four legs. Um, we grew up on a few acres just between Calgary and Cochrane, Alberta. And, yeah, I mean, right in the bow zone for awesome whitetail hunting, mule deer hunting, moose, uh, okay elk hunting, and then a little bit further west, you're into the Canmore bow zone for sheep. And I mean, legally can hunt once you're 12, and and we were we were there doing it. I mean, it was um, every weekend, a lot of weekdays. I mean, I kind of had the mindset with my teachers in high school. We would we would get yanked out of school. Uh, I would go in there with what tags I drew and what trips I was going on and, and get some homework. And, and like September was more often than not spent in the mountains hunting. Um, and it just evolved from, from stuff around home, deer, things like that to the mountains. And, and it's just like a really hook, hook line and sinker way to kind of get involved in bow hunting is, um, is doing it with your family and doing it in a place like the Rockies and doing it for sheep. It's like, you kind of don't even have a chance to not fall in love with it. And you, you sort of, um, 
it, it gets in your guts pretty quickly. And, uh, and that's what happened. I mean, I was kind of doing backpack sheep hunts, um, at an early age, I think I was, my birthday's at the end of September. So I was 13 turning 14 doing backpack stuff with my old man. At the same time, I was taking a black and white photography class in high school. So I was shooting, processing, editing, and printing film um, with a little Nikon film camera on those hunts, on those trips. I just wanted a piece to take back of all these awesome places that, uh, that hunting takes you in. So that was how I got involved in, in both in parallel and always did it as a passion. I was always a guy on uh, we used to do an annual sheep trip for the opener every year. And I was always a guy like packing camera gear. And this is, I mean, this is like, I don't know, 2000, 2003, 2004, 2005 kind of thing. Um, bringing camera gear, taking photos of everything. And they were all really, really, really crappy photos but that's how I kind of learned. And, um, yeah, really fortunate, really lucky that it's, uh, it's evolved and blossomed into a little bit of a career and as a vehicle to take me to a lot of cool places, meet lots of interesting people. And hunting is just in the way that we, we do it in the style of, of, of backpack hunting and sheep hunting and mountain hunting has just exploded. And there's these companies that are making fantastic gear that are trying to tell important stories and um we're just really really fortunate that they're around and uh we get to do what we get to do for a living and call it work it's just kind of like a pinch me every time i'm out there every time i wake up to be honest that's awesome and you kind of answered one of my questions before i had a chance to ask it because i was interested in when kind of photography became an integral piece but it seems like it was a really natural evolution and seems really genuine too. Like it wasn't like there wouldn't have been no Instagram back then. This was not about showcasing or bragging. This was about just trying to record a piece of memory so that you would have something after the fact to look back on. Yeah. I mean, the, the uh, well in Cochrane, Alberta, the internet probably didn't get there till like about nine years ago and Instagram and Facebook about seven years. I'm, I'm just kidding. It was there. It's normal times. We had dial up internet. Social media wasn't really a thing. I mean, I got a shoebox full of little black and white prints of like my dad standing uh, on top of a mountain that I shouldn't mention the name of uh, in Alberta. And I've got I've got old prints of my brother and my buddies from high school out hunting and and you know doing stuff that just would be in the memory bank, but we would be long forgotten. Um, if it wasn't for some of those photos. So yeah, I mean, that was just, it's just the thing that I did is just the way that I was interested in, in being in the mountains and being in the backcountry. Um, and, uh, yeah, just special. I mean, it's really special. I mean, that's what kind of, it was a family thing. I with my dad, I with my brother, I with a few really close friends. Now is the same. I with a few close friends, family, my wife, my, my brother, my dad, you know, it's like these people, it's such a special thing. I mean, it's like borderline it's borderline religious. I mean, in the sense that it's, it's an all year, all encompassing thing that I'm thinking about. Um, and so to be able to, to take photos, to kind of have them is, it's just cool. I mean, it's just really cool. So one of the things I find interesting about mountain hunters in specific, and I, I tend to do a lot of stuff by myself and people always think it's badass, And it's just cause I don't know anybody dumb enough to come with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but people are always asking me like, 
Like, how do you go back in there by yourself for so long? And how can, and I always say like, you got to understand, this is not something I need to make myself do. Like it's, it's difficult, but like, this is what I think of when I think of a good time. Like my wife says, where do you want to go on vacation? I'm like, I want to go in the backcountry for 12 days by myself. And she's like, I was kind of thinking Maui. And I'm like, and then we got to have that conversation. <laughs> but, yeah. and I kind of know where that came from for me. But like, do you think you got that from your dad? Was it an example you saw growing up? Is this like a nature nurture conversation? Like you are not a normal person due to like what you find enjoyable and the levels to which you're able to push yourself. Where do you think that came from? Well, I would, I would say it's in all of our DNA to some sense. I mean, we're supposed to be out there. I mean, just the way, the feeling that you get when you're sitting on a mountain looking for animals or listening for footsteps in the forest or, I mean, even when you're looking for uh, mushrooms or, for, you know, or fishing even, like any of these kind of natural ways of interacting with, with wildlife in wild places, like we are so meant to be doing that. And there's this like feedback loop of, wow, this scratches an itch that does not exist anywhere that I've found. I love hiking. I love mountain biking. Um, I love going on river trips and, and fishing and, and things like that. Um, but hunting and kind of like this pursuit of an animal is it just, it just scratches a completely different itch. And so there's just sort of something that's tugging me back time and time and time and time again and going a little bit farther a little bit deeper a little bit higher a little bit longer probably same as you you might share that um and, and then the other thing is um yeah i mean it's just such a it's hard to put into words to be honest it's hard to yeah. put into words because it doesn't make sense to most people but more and more it seems like people that are getting into hunting they get it i mean i just talked to a woman from Seattle. She has a cooking show. She is like wanting to get into hunting and she's started by foraging for, um, for wild edibles. And like, she's tried hunting and she's like, wow, this is like, why do you think I like this so much? I, I shouldn't really feel like I shouldn't like hunting. And, and then my response is kind of like, well, actually you, you should. Um, because like we're, we got forward facing eyes. We are looking for patterns. We're trying to be in environments that challenge us. And that's the other thing I'd say too, it's like, we're supposed to be challenged. I mean, we got, yes, we got soft hands and uh, no hair on our bodies. We've, we've gone years and years and years without doing too many hard things. And I mean, we're supposed to be doing that. So challenge in whatever way you define it. Sort of one way to skin the cat is to go backpack hunting, but there's lots of things that people do. I just sort of, it's my drug of choice, I guess, in terms of the challenging part, just it, it is challenging. Yeah, that uh, resonates really strong with me. I kind of went through this evolution starting in my mid twenties. Everything before then was basically a write-off. Kind of went through like this CrossFit thing, and then this competitive jujitsu right. athlete thing, and like I just kept searching, and I felt like I kept getting closer. And it wasn't until I found backpack hunting that I was like, oh. This is that thing that I've been looking for. And the way I always describe it to people is I never feel more myself than when I'm out in the mountains. Like here, I'm always like, what am I supposed to do? And how am I supposed to be a little bit, you know, like there's just a little bit of that going mm -hmm. on. And it's like, it's never like that out there. It's like, oh, 
this is what I'm meant to do. Like I feel perfectly myself and okay with and present and in the moment. And that there's an intensity to it. I think the mountains demand your focus. It's not a choice. Like if you, if you are not present and focused and it's like the purity of that focus and, and it is, I like your drug of choice analogy because it's like, I come back and I like, I go through a bit of withdrawal because the outside life doesn't have that same intensity that the life in the mountains does. Totally agree. And I think the more that you do it, the, the more you go out with a certain mindset and you come back changed, you just never come back the same type of person, even if it's super minor. I think there's like a great fly fishing quote that goes something like no two men step in the same river twice. Cause he is not the same man. And, and the river, but I totally butchered it. I the river that. has changed. And so is he, you know, basically kind of thing. And, uh, yeah. I think about that a lot. I mean, you're out there, there's a level of intensity. There's also a level of reflection and sort of your brain has an interesting way of working through problems you didn't even know existed because you didn't even really have time to listen to them because you're going a million miles an hour and yeah, answering emails, looking at notifications and looking at screens. And so it's sort of like being out there for a level of challenge and intensity, but also a level of, of reflection and introspection. That is, even if it's just to go and, and honestly think about nothing and kind of clear your mind, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good recipe for doing that too. I warn people on the solo shit because it's like, dude, you were going to start thinking about that chick you broke up with like 12 years ago. And like the things <laughs> you thought you had dealt with and you were okay with like your demons, they're coming back because there's nothing to keep them at bay. Like you said, there's no flashy screens and like, dude, I can't even stand in a grocery line checkout for 30 seconds without pulling my phone out of my pocket. Like any dead space needs to be filled. Like it's a sickness. But out there, there's none of that. And it's just like you're forced to confront all this stuff that you, it's the weirdest stuff, man. Like, it's hard to explain. Yeah, things you just, you never thought you were going to contemplate again. And then they're just like right there in front of you, which I think is cathartic. Like, I think that's half of what it is for me. Mm -hmm. Like, you come out, like you say, a little bit different um, every time. Okay, so let's transition a little bit into the photography thing. I'd like to know, and I think you already touched on this, a little bit, but like how you think about photography in general, and maybe if I could add some more kind of context, are there any principles, for example, that you've developed over time or that have served you well that you try and keep in mind when shooting or just a particular perspective you have when you go out there to take photos? It's a great question. I think that's it's an always evolving one. I think I sort of think of myself as, as an observer of what's happening and trying to kind of dig through the layers of, of, of I mean, it gets thrown around a lot, but, but finding this, this story and finding the, the parts right. that are working against the story, you know, who's the protagonist and the antagonist and the characters and the arc of, of the beginning and the middle and the end just from a high level, this is sort of how my mind works. Anyways, I'm kind of always thinking what, what's, what's the, the story that I'm going to write in my journal and read in 80 years. Well, not gonna be alive, but some, some long lost person is reading and kind of what happened, the sights and the sounds, the, um, 
all the different factors that came into play it, it are all parts of of a story that I would that I would tell to you over a beer or something like that and trying to put them down in image form because I think they should be a group of images should be self-explanatory or open to interpretation in some ways too where you've got this like collection of of let's say it's a hunt but it can be anything and they should sort of speak to the weather and the emotion and, and the challenge and the beauty and the hardship and the chat and the sort of like churning river and then like these sort of like bringing these like bits of wild places like two people that maybe don't even know they exist on one hand on the other hand don't even know that you encounter these things hunting and i think that's like a big part of sort of just like a a, a background or, or underlying mission of ours um myself and my my wife frankie who i work with is to let people know that these these places exist you should go to them hunting is a great way to go to them but it's not the only way and see them for yourselves and and the more people that know about them care about them will uh will stand up for them and protect them and so um there's that element and there's also the element of of like hunting's probably not what you think it is and by you i mean just the average person and it's um yeah i don't know i kind of rambled and got off topic there there's a few things going on in my mind with respect to photography <laughs> that, no it makes a lot of sense and what what really struck home for me was because you've been doing these carousels lately on instagram and if you were to take any of the photos independently it's it's kind of just a photo but when you, and I didn't know how intentional this was. I mean, obviously, I assumed it was somewhat intentional. But when you scroll through them all together, I was like, I found it really inspirational. I made a mental note, like I'm about to leave on a bear hunt here in a couple of weeks, and I'm. It was inspiring for me because I was like, it conveys a sense of tone about the hunt that I almost think is really hard to do otherwise because you kind of need to like lead a person into what a, 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 an interpretation could be, but the fact. And I don't want to get all sappy, but it's like good lyrics or something. You kind of know what he means, but it could mean a few different things. And when I see these groups of photos, like one is just a macro of a, of a blade of grass. And then I see a couple of water beads on a tent. And then I see like the fog lifting in the big vista. And it's like, I get it. I Like I know that week in the mountains, like I can feel like the dampness in the air and the chill in the morning. And it's like this collection of photographs is able to like, bring that to somebody who wasn't there. Love it. <laughs> you're one of a, you're one of the, you're one of a hundred people that would, I mean, no, that is the point. That's the point. And it is intentional and it is kind of trying to, sh trying to show our, whether you want to call it a sport or a discipline of hunting to the outside, outside world that, that, that this is what we do. And this is really what occurs. I mean, it is a, an engagement with nature. It is 99.9% .9 of the time walking around looking for animals, kind of looking goofy with way too much gear and 0.01% yeah. killing something. And, um, yeah, I appreciate you saying that, man, because that means a lot. And I think, uh, that's too, I think as an observer through a camera trying to communicate these ideas that are somewhat prescriptive, but also open to interpretation because then that way they're for lack of a better word. And I kind of hate the word, but they're kind of authentic. Like it's, it's like, this is a, this is what happened. This is like, 
in photography, it's like, this is street photography or this is documentary photography. This is like a dude sitting there and he looks old and he has these features about his face that he's seen some shit and gone through some times. And it's like, you don't really know, but you can kind of think about it. And, and hunting and nature kind of can be the same way is like, this is it. It's grand. It's, it's macro, it's deep, it's fun. And anyways, yeah, I think there's lots of parts of it that, that go into it. And that's really cool that I resonate with you, man. I appreciate the kind words. Well, I, I think what I learned about myself is that my failing, well, not, uh, failing would be a strong word, but the thing I hadn't realized up until now is that I was trying to catch milestone moments. And I think you learn, you lose a certain, I like your word engagement with nature because you learn, you lose a certain depth of the engagement when you only have these like stochotic broken moments, as opposed right. to like this whole collection of the experience. And like, so that's the mindset that I'm trying to take in from a visual perspective with this next hunt is like more about, cause that's what it's like when you, you catch the sun rays coming through some leaves and then you get some like rain on your face. Like these are the moments that make a hunt a hunt. And these are the things that contribute to the sights and the sounds and the smells and the feels of what it's like to be, it's not just the grip and grin at the end or the big mm -hmm. impressive mountain shot with the sun shining on everything just perfect. It's like all that little stuff in between is where it really happens. A hundred percent, man. Yeah. It's the in-between moments and that's, yeah, that's what it's all about. The story would be incomplete. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's like, uh, I got a buddy who's an outfitter up in the Northwest territories. It's like reading a book and only reading the last page of it or something, right? It's like the book is only good because you read the whole thing. So yeah, yeah, I think you're thinking about it. And you are the mindful hunter. So well, I'm trying to be. Driving it forward. You keep thinking yeah. about it. Uh, we've always spent too much time on a hunt thinking. This is true too. You should, you, you got to enjoy yourself sometimes too. Um, okay. So do you approach different hunts? Like you're kind of known as a sheep guy, but that's not all you are. If you were, and let's say it was a brand experience, like it's a, it's a Sitka thing or something, depending on, let's say the animal or the terrain, do you approach different hunts, different ways, as far as how you plan to tell the story? Uh, I mean, there's probably both for anything. There's a level of just planning that goes into these things, whether it's just, and I, I mean, I think it's, it's like from a technical perspective, there's, there's like some thinking about the shots that you're trying to get um, the gear that you're going to bring to get those shots for sure. That's good. That's like basic. The other thing is just like scratching the itch of like the interest of a hunt that is occurring. Like why is this person or people hunting these animals? How long have they been for? W where are they at in the timescale of their population and what stresses are they on from a hunting perspective or a predator perspective or climate change perspective? like what's happening um what is it what does it mean to this person to go on this trip uh are they experienced are they not is it the first time are they with their daughter are they with their best friend are they doing it by themselves like sort of all these questions that you just just make for a good a good like i said story over over a beer like the who what where when why i think is our important elements to to preparing for a different hunt and the answers to those questions will probably help determine how I would approach it. But I mean, I'm not overly freaking anal, man. I'm like pretty there's like stuff is all over the place for the most part. Um and 
I, I, I sort of like this to scratch the edge. Like what's, what's the curiosity of what's occurring here and then go from there. Because if you follow that, then it'll sort of come across in the photography that you're creating. If you're kind of assigned something that you don't think is that interesting, people are interesting, man. Animals are interesting. Like if I go on a turkey hunt in Northern, I don't even know, is there, is there turkeys in Northern Ontario? Somewhere I've never been and never hunted. Turkey hunt in Ontario. In Ontario. It's above Michigan. There must be. There's something interesting there. And it's the job of a photographer, a storyteller, writer to find that and find the heart of it. And um, that's my that's my job. And I, and I like to think I can get it right more often than not, but often I get it wrong. And that's where that's where the feedback loop of sort of the photography that you shoot, the images that you edit, the stuff you put out there, and then kind of repeating that again and again and again and again, that kind of drives like, drives like a look or a, a feel from a hunt or something like that. And that's something that we're so, so spoiled these days because of like the digital age of photography. Like right. you can go in your backyard and shoot pictures of the dandelions and bring them in to Lightroom and edit them. And then like, see what you did wrong and then you can go back out there and like that loop is so 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 tight now and that's sort of a big part of it too like creativity is like a muscle like it's like you flex the muscle you train the muscle you nurture the muscle you give it water you give it protein you you give it rest and yeah with anything it kind of helps to continue to continue to train that uh that muscle because it it, it it does atrophy if you don't use it um and so, yeah, I think that's a big part of it too. It's just like continuing to push yourself to do it and to take photos of different things that aren't even related to what you're trying to take photos of. I think that's a big part of it too. So, yeah. Okay. So that's, that's a good segue into kind of a more technical part of the conversation. What's your current setup? Current setup. I've been shooting Sony mirrorlesses for the last four years since about mid 2017 and was shooting Nikon before that, basically when Sony came on with the A9, doubled the battery size and battery life, got rid of a lot of issues with overheating. And the biggest thing was wide angle lenses were easier or, or just, they kind of proved the test case of, um, the, the, this is a viable market with these mirrorless cameras. And so they didn't really have a lot of wide angle lenses. Okay. And 2017, they started saying, yep, yeah, we can do it. We can make it because the sensor just sits like so closely behind the lens. It's actually like physically really hard to make a wide angle lens. Anyway, it's probably too technical, but um, 2017, they, they did, they came out with more and more wides and also just like really good glass that they didn't have because they were just kind of dipping their toe in. Mm -hmm. And if you take a look at that and the video capability of the Sony's, it was pretty clear at that time, like these guys are going to, they're going to take over. And so I sold all my Nikon stuff with taking a bath and a, oh. <laughs> a bath on a lot of nice pieces of glass, which I'm happy I did now, but at the time it was a, a pill. Um, and so yeah, I've been shooting, uh, shooting Sony's since, um, kind of have probably shot like, most of the bodies that are full frame, full frame Sony's, um, I've an a seven three, a seven R three right now and a nine. 
I kind of rotate bodies. I probably have two bodies that are that are not functioning or half functioning at all times. I'm sending one for repair. Or I dropped it in the water or something like that. So I have like quite a few bodies rotating through. And I usually don't buy the best, most recent body that's released. I usually try not to do that. I did that with A9, but I try not to because the money, the money's in the glass. Like the 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 value is in the lens. The long-term return on investment is in the lens. And so I'd rather spend the money on the lenses. And then the bodies are flavor of the week a little bit. They're coming out with new good ones every freaking 18 months. And so if I'm you laughing because I just game, bought the A1. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I did. I did exactly what you're, but I couldn't, I couldn't agree more about the glass too. I used to spend all the money in the body and then I would get shitty, you know, Tamron glass or, or, or something. And I've totally changed that perspective. Like glass will outlast the body one, 100%. I couldn't agree more. How do you like the A1? It's insane. Yeah. Here was my thing. I was an A7 III guy. I loved yeah. it. In fact, I like the A7 III more than the A7S III. For somebody who's going to do photography, a 12 megapixel sensor just doesn't cut it. Um, amazing low light capabilities with video, and that's great. But I liked my 24 megapixel sensor in the A3. And I think that's still, or the A7 III. And I think that still yeah. might be the best bang for your buck Sony on the market right now. Just sold mine used for two grand to a, to a pretty nice girl, um, the other night, which is, a you know, I think they're like 22 99 brand new or something like that's a lot of camera for a couple grand considering the a one is like 8,500 bucks plus tax. But that 56 mega, my problem was I'm always trying to carry minimal glass. So I thought to myself, you're almost getting double your lens because of the resolution of the dual sensor. Like you can just, you can crop in that much closer on those landscapes and those, that was my rationale. Yep. And it was funny when you mentioned at the beginning, before we kind of hit record about people, how do you do your passion for a living? I made a very tactical decision a long time ago. I'm good at what I do for a living and I, and I do quite well. And that allows me the freedom to invest in my passion guilt-free. So I don't have to confuse cool. the two. I don't have to find a way to make my, like I, I drew that line, which I think is just one way to, to go about it. I haven't had an opportunity to shoot. My last big hunt was a goat hunt that I shot on the A7 III. It was, it was great. I haven't had an opportunity to shoot a big hunt on this one yet. So it will really, we'll see. If anybody was going to ask, I'd say it's overkill. You don't need 30 frames per second. Nobody in their right mind is going to shoot 8K and maybe when they come out with the A7 IV, I will realize I should have just waited uh, because I probably could have got all the features I wanted for four grand instead of eight grand. But I've also found from a gear perspective, I've never regretted buying the best because that mm -hmm. seems to retain its value the most. And like, yeah, I'll lose 30% a year, two years later on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace, but you'll still get to recoup a pretty, especially with the Sony mirrorless stuff, like there's such a thriving market for mm -hmm. those bodies. But overall, I'm super impressed, man. I love the thing, and I'm looking forward to getting it out in the field, um, and and kind of putting it through its paces. Well, I was looking at it too. I was right there with you, and I think the answer to the question is it worth it is like the combination of the photo and video capabilities that camera is just like insane, insane, and in the same form factor as just like the rest of the mirrorless line, it's actually mind boggling. Uh, yeah. So 
when there is like this kind of big paradigm shifting body release, which probably only happens once every five years, then, then there is like a good instance to take a look at it. And I did that with the A9 in 2017. Yeah. Game changing in my opinion, the A1 could be game changing. Uh, I just like, I burned through bodies like bad, man. So it's sort of hard to kind of throw down, throw down the cash for a body that I know is going to last like a year and a half, maybe two. And that's the only reason I haven't yet, but I probably will. (laughs) I probably will. Unless, uh, you tell me not to, or someone tells me not to. So far, I'm telling you to do it. Do you do the Mac yeah. warranties? No, I don't so know anything about that. There's tell this me. company. I'll send you the link. They're Mac M A C, and they're a third party uh, warranty provider. They're out of New Jersey, and I bought a three year warranty for my A1 for 750 bucks, and it's nice. anything fall off the back of a truck. I can ship them a crushed body. They give me a new camera. It can be waterlogged. Cool. They fix it or new camera. And you can do it as many times as you want. And I just did the math. I thought I nuked my a7 III on that goat hunt. And I was like, Ugh. and I just started doing the math. And it was like, yeah, when your camera starts getting worth that much money to have, and they come pretty widely regarded in the industry. Like, I guess they're pretty easy to deal with. And they're not going to say, no, this was, this was out of scope or something like that. So yeah, I'll send cool. you the link. It was definitely worth it, especially when you're like, we're doing things with gear that was not meant to be done to the gear. So it, there's, it just does not last the way it does for, yeah. for normal people. 100%. I have ins- you know, insurance on all this stuff for catastrophic right. things. Like somebody grabs a telephone case of all my stuff, but it, I think it's $2,000 deductible. And yeah. last camera I cooked, I, I mailed it in and you know, it took me three months to get a response and it was just a pain in the ass. And I was like, Oh man. So yeah, something like that. That's just like a no fault because that's the other thing is like, these things are tools. Uh, they are either used to share stories or, you know, as a passion or to pay the bills. And I don't like really want to be without a camera ever. So I have a couple of them, but the, like insurance claim route was like such a pain in the ass that something like this, if you're like, Hey, I'm overnighting you this camera, I need a new one. Then uh, it's definitely worth the 750 bucks. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll send you the link. So going, uh, sticking with this, with this theme, what, what do you like for glass these days? And has there been any significant shifts in how you look at glass or what you like to take with you? I mean, traditionally I was like, Prime primes all the way. Um, I would run 1835, 55, 85 and be super happy. Two bodies, one on either an 18 or 35, one either on a 55 and 85. Like that's it. Um, I thought it was, I mean, in terms of just actual like sharpness, can't really beat a prime low light capabilities. Got sort of like a better, aperture opening then you will like a zoom lens. so like maybe back it up like a zoom lens for the audience maybe talk about this stuff in the podcast not but like is a variable focal length lens that you can go from wider to more zoomed in like a 24 to 70 would be like a classic zoom lens or a 7200 would be a classic zoom lens and then primes are like fixed focal length with a fixed aperture that only gives you one look whether that be wide or medium or tight is this video going to be recorded it is. 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll see it. Um, and primes, I, I like the what they offer in terms of sharpness, low light, and I like that they're generally lighter and more compact. That's the key thing: lighter, mm -hmm. more compact. Anything that's light that doesn't sacrifice like the photography quality, I think, is well worth it. But um, I don't know. I kind of get away from having kind of shifting back and forth. I think that's kind of how we go. The pendulum swings back and forth. The kicker on the prime, and one thing I would say about primes too is like they simplify your photography process because you just look and you just see focal length. You're just like bing, 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 grab whatever one. Whereas when you have like a zoom, you're kind of like I've watched people and I do this myself. You're kind of like it's it's like fear of better options. It's like okay, should I shoot this wide or medium or tight? When you just pick up like the prime, it's like this is it. This is all I got. I can move my feet and. That's it. And I actually like that simplicity. I actually kind of recommend that often for people getting into photography is like, it's a great way to start, but I've been, I've been using a zoom a little bit more. And I, and I would say all that aside, like 7,200 is like my one zoom that I like would bring now. It's very heavy. It's very expensive for the average like, um, consumer or prosumer it does offer a different look and like some bigger, longer lens, like compression of the mountains. And I like it, but I'm honestly like, okay with leaving that lens behind because I, I bring it and it does live in the backpack a lot because right. it's just, I just like my shit to be like right here, sitting here on my backpack all the time. And like the 7200, you can put it there, but, um, I found when you do that, like the weight of the lens pulls on the body and actually like after mile, after mile, after mile, you get a lot of loosening of the the back element. Like it just starts to loosen up. And like, I've had to do like open heart surgery on that thing in the field where like you're screwing it back Ugh. together and it's like no good. So I don't know. That's like a stay in my pack a lot, but the zoom thing, I've kind of like the, the 20, like 24 70, like the zoom is kind of nice. And the reason I like it for some situations is like, weather and not switching lenses like when it's shit shitty outside you got to yeah. switch switch lenses like you're screwed you're 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 locked in on the lens that you have and so it is nice you can do one man band one lens like shoot shoot you know different lengths and get a lot out of it everything is like for video it's pretty nice too because again you're just you're just getting more coverage like shooting like a, a wider array of of shots rather than just one focal length but um I don't know, man. I answered that question way too long. I like both. I like primes. If I had a gun to my head, I would, I got my closet right here with all my camera stuff. I would grab like two or three primes and I wouldn't even think about it. And I would just go. And I know there's an element, there's an element of simplicity that's driven from primes and also distilling down to like the craft of photography that it sh should almost be distilled down to where like, go make a great image with a 50 and a body or an iPhone, right? Go take an iPhone and put it in portrait mode or whatever and shoot a photo. And like, it's a pretty damn good photo if you're in a cool place and you think about all these other things in photography that nobody talks about or thinks about, which is like lighting and composition and all these things. It's not just gear. It's not just a piece of equipment. Um, so yeah, I kind of like that. Just like, like I said earlier, it's a little bit of a, of a muscle that needs to be flexed. And I kind of like the creative challenge of like, like if I'm going to go like, so I'm in the Okanagan, my like family's here. My aunt and uncle have a big orchard and they have apples and we just planted all their um, 
stuff in their garden. It's like, if I'm going to go just take photos of the, of the kids and, and the family, like I just grab 50 and a camera and like go. And I love it. It's like yeah. so fun and photos of babies and just like normal stuff. Like I live a normal life. Like most of the time it's pretty damn boring. Um, and for stuff like that, it's like nifty 50 body, take some cool photos. And I love that stuff. It's like, those are some of my favorite photos. So like, why does that same theory not apply when you're out in the mountains or in this beautiful place? Like, why do you need some different crazy gear or some crazy filters or some, some, some super expensive body? It's like, actually you probably don't. Um, you probably don't. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Resonates with my own, uh, um, journey as well. Like I've gone through a bunch of stuff, but in this most latest inter- inter- iteration, I was doing everything on a 24 mil. The other thing is I'm always solo. Yeah. So I need something I can shoot myself with. So it's got to be a little bit right. wide. And I just, I like the 24 frame. And again, it forced you to be mm-hmm. creative within those limitations. And then I was on this elk hunt in Northern Rockies. And I was like 85 meters from a caribou, almost came to full draw. And I have this footage and you can't even, it's like, there's nothing. It, it just looks like red brush. Like, and I'm like, I, I need more. And then, so that's when I went to the 24 to 70, because again, yeah, that kind of run and gun mentality, I don't have time to put on a second. Like it just hangs on my chest and I, and I need, and so the, the 70 gave that to me. And just now this will be the first hunt I've taken two lenses on in mm-hmm. half a decade. And I just bought the 35 millimeter F 1.4, the, the new Sony nice. one. And because I'm trying to focus more on the, my artistic photography and the 24 to 70 only goes to F 2.8 and you, you can't really get that soft, shallow depth of field the same way you can when you get like, you know, down below an F two or something like that. So, and I was looking at, it's like 400 grams or, or something like that. Like it's just over three quarters of a pound. And I'm like, I'm a big guy. I, I could carry an extra three quarters of a pound to add another like level of of interest, but I think you summed up the whole prime zoom. I would also say technology has come a long way with zooms. When I used to buy the kind of lower end zooms, they were, you just didn't compare to the primes. Even like the Sigma art 24 to 70 I have right now is a really nice lens. And it's like 1400 bucks. Like that's pretty reasonable for the, for the quality that you're, you're getting, you know, those guys are making killer lenses, man. I don't understand how they do it for the price. It makes me feel like the other guys have been ripping us off this whole time. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Okay. We don't have a whole lot of time left and I want to get into, um, a little bit of gear stuff. I want to give a shout out. You did a phenomenal video called gearing up for the mountains and it's on Adam's YouTube. Just search Adam Foss and YouTube. So I'm not going to ask you the same questions, but one of the things I loved in that video is that you said gear concepts are just as, if not more important than an actual gear list. And I don't want, you don't have to go through like a laundry list of what your concepts are, but maybe just share with everybody, like the way you think about gear. Cause I think that's missing these days. Everybody's like, what boots should I get? What tent should I run? And it's like, that's not, you're asking the wrong question. So if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Thanks for the kind words. Um, We did that video for wild sheep foundation sheep week. It was like an online seminar. I do that seminar live. Uh, over the years, I've done something or a version of that for the Wild Sheep Foundation, which uh, if anyone's listening, check out Wild Sheep Foundation. And uh, they're a nonprofit that's helping put and keep sheep on the mountain. So a little plug there for you. Um, 
Wild Sheep Society here in BC is a chapter of Wild Sheep Foundation too. So you become a, a member or look at what they're doing too. It's important stuff for for what we're interested in, which is which is sheep and and wild places. So um, yeah, that's where that video came from. You can check it out. Whew, the concepts, yeah. I mean, I could we could do a whole podcast on this. I think very very easily. But um, but a couple of the key things I think that I try to urge people to do is um, making it very very personal to themselves and and the situation that that they are in on a particular hunt i think i think it's just oh man it's very easy to just get a gear list and what i've seen is you get a gear list you use the gear in a different way than it was intended for and you end up a little bit disappointed so there's a big knowledge gap there's a big knowledge gap and i think hopefully you can help people not go through the ups and downs and things that i've gone through and you've probably gone through of using the wrong tool for the job. Um, but at the same time, that learning kind of builds in a little bit of, of, of memory of, of the pain that happened when you brought a tarp instead of a tent or too light of rain gear, or somebody told you these boots are awesome and maybe you got them on a deal or something like that. And you have wicked blisters. It's like those little, I've done all those things. And now I know like what kind of lessons I don't want to relearn. Um, so I would just say that from like a high level and then maybe a bit more granular. It's like this really big pendulum swing of durability versus ultralight versus functionality that everybody kind of like immediately start looking at gear. And if you're not super experienced, you start seeing like ultralight hunting and, and ounces make pounds and pounds make pain. And these sort of mantras that I think are really good to think about. Um, but also they come with a huge amount of pay, um, like you're eventually going to pay the price yeah. on whether it be comfort, whether it be cutting a trip short, which those are two easy things. It's not a big deal, but you I mean, you might pay it in, in a more dire sense. And so, um, what I'm trying to spit out here is I didn't know you're going to ask me this stuff. So I'm like, trying to remember back to that video. Cause I got, I just sort of like did it all on like a one take. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's like, there's a temptingness to go to the lightest weight gear that you can possibly yeah. go experience. They're looking at the weather. Maybe it's a shorter trip. They're, they're crafty enough um, that they can figure out how to get out of a situation that they find themselves in. If their gear fails, they can repair their equipment. They just know the limitations of it. And so, there, there's, I would just urge people to kind of think about, um, a couple extra pounds, like, is it going to make or break or hunt, but it will allow you to be in a situation like a snowstorm or, you know, a, a sort of worse situation that you don't want to end up in, um, extending your hunt, extending your comfort and being out there than it will just like go on ultralight, lightest weight gear and kind of like your backpack breaks and your boots break down and your tent rips. And then you actually don't even get to experience what you're out there to experience. Um, and then, yeah, there's lots of other stuff like, like gear as double duty gear as like things that, um, things that are, are can be used for different, many different things. Like you can use duct tape for a lot of things. You can use your checking poles to pitch your tent. You can use your phone now as a camera and a book and mapping and like using gear multiple ways and, and almost like nothing in your gear list should really be in your pack if it doesn't serve multiple purposes i mean outside of like the very specific things like a weapon and and your optics but um 
Yeah. And then clothing systems too. Clothing systems like are really, really important. And people just bring too much clothes. They bring the wrong clothes. They bring like many pairs of socks and underwear that they don't need. They bring um, two pairs of pants or they bring like, like things that overlap, like multiple insulation layers and then no like wind breaking layer or your wind breaking layer probably double dips as your ring gear anyways. And that's cool, but they'll bring like four t-shirts and then like, maybe they won't bring rain pants. They're like, well, I don't bring rain pants. Cause like it probably won't rain. And you know, it's just an extra weight. It's like, but you have like six like things that you can only wear one of at a time and you don't have this other super functional piece of gear, which actually like to, to mention rain pants, it's like, you don't wear rain pants just when it's raining. You wear it when like there's condensation the night before, or you're sitting down glassing on like cold rocks and the wind is blowing, like throw those things on. They completely block, like if it's a vapor barrier, it blocks wind, it blocks moisture from the ground. It's like pretty useful piece of equipment. And like now you can get rain gear that's 10 or 11 or 12 ounces for the pants. It's like, that's going to be a way better use of your weight budget than this extra stuff that you have. But ah, I try to condense it all. How do I do? No, that's, you hit the highlights that were important to me because <laughs> what I've learned is I take less now, but the things I take tend to be heavier. Like the sleeping right. pad I take now weighs almost three quarters of a pound more than the first sleeping pad I ever bought because I slept like shit. And I'm like, oh, that's right. not a three quarters of a pound I want to save. And yeah. you start to, people underestimate the importance of recovery and comfort. And it's like, if you think about it as it is, as its function to increase the likelihood of your success. It's the same thing with optics, man. Like, yeah, okay, I can get away with shitty optics, but if my eyeballs start bleeding out of my head, I'm going to stop glassing. And if I stop glassing, I'm not going to find an animal. So it, yeah. It, yeah, I think it's, it's deeper. And I, I do think that there is a penalty to be paid. I talk about my backpack all the time. So I'm a Kafaru guy. I love my Kafaru pack. Yes, my pack and frame probably weighs three pounds more than a stone glacier or another ultralight pack. Stone glacier is a bad example because they're actually good packs, but any ultralight pack. But when I put a 120 pound pack out in my eight pound Kafaru fulcrum, it feels like 80 pounds. And if I put 120 right. pounds in an ultralight back, it's bag, it's going to feel like 150 pounds. So I think there's like, there's give and take there and certain things are worth cutting weight on and certain things aren't. And I think you nailed it. It's more about the selection process. Don't try and bring a whole bunch of really light shit. Bring a few really useful items. And if they end up being a little bit heavier, it's fine because you have less pieces overall. Yep. hundred percent. And I think, I think you forget often. It's tempting to forget often about what's, what's the like worst case, best case scenario. I mean, best case scenario, you kill an animal 20 miles back and you have to get back to the airstrip and you have a full sheep or a goat or something like that. And you're by yourself. That's fine when we're talking. Yeah. I mean, you just, you just nailed it. It's like, that's maybe what's going to happen. We're hunting. We're out there with the goal of killing something often. We don't, but that's the goal. And you have to kind of be prepared for that scenario. The scenario of like sitting in your tent for seven days. Like, do you want to pay six more ounces for a tent? That's like a little bit bigger. And you sure as shit know is not going to get blown away when you're holding the corners down. It's like, you probably do. Um, so yeah, there's tons of examples like that. And I think what it boils down to is some level of experience and thirst for knowledge of, of using these pieces of gear in a practical sense that will allow you to kind of make those choices. And everyone's different, man. People, it's like my brother, like he doesn't need anything. He can, he's like a freaking 
Yeti or something. Like he's, he it does not get cold. The core body temperature keeps him warm. I'm like cold. I want to be warm. Yeah. It varies person to person. So that level of it being personal is important, important to know too. And what works for me might not work for you because I'm choosing it this way. And yeah, maybe you have warm blood. Okay. I want to respect your time, but I got two more quick ones. Are we good? I'm good on time. Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I'd like to hear about the dew point experience because I was lucky enough. I hit you up for sizing recommendations and then Barclow was good enough to send me a set of the dew point. So I'm super excited because I'm like, this shit is really nice, man. Like I'm, I was a forestry engineer in BC for 15 years. I lived in rain gear five days a week, 52 weeks a year. Like I've worn everything under the sun. Um, I was super impressed at how, and again, I haven't put it through paces, so I'm not going to put my stamp on it yet, but like the texture and the quality and knowing what they've put into it, I'm super impressed. But because you were kind of like one of their early testers and were kind of the main guy to bring it to market, what was that whole process like? Well, I mean, the reality has been working with Sika for 10 years. So I've had a lot of different testing experience with stuff that uh, from, from base layers, like skin to shell, everything, uh, other products that never went anywhere. Um, some products that are my favorite products now, some products that, that worked for some very particular applications, but didn't work for maybe they, they didn't have the durability or they didn't, uh, maybe they're like, no, no way people would ever actually buy this stuff because right. there's going to be about hundred people on earth to make it a valuable sort of business decision. Um, so I've got, yeah, I've been really lucky to kind of get, get a box of stuff. Sometimes it's two different colors of a pant sewn together and for two different fabric <laughs> testing. It's like really cool. And Barclow, if you, if you, it sounds like you talk to him or interact with him, he's like kind of a mad scientist. He's like really smart about thinking about a way that the activity of hunting can un, unravel. And the, and that's sort of what I meant by that, touching on it is like, I've hunted with him a little bit and the way that his mind thinks of like, what is the worst case scenario that could happen? What are the chances of that happening? And can you basically take all of your shit that you have and and live through it, basically? And so um, he, Barclow, the, the lead product designer at Sikta, is like really good at that. And he comes from a training Navy SEALs and Kodiak Island background and like doing a lot of stuff that's like, hunting is easy compared to like the stuff that you're talking about. It is easy. It's a cakewalk. We're just trying to like find these little four-legged animals and um, play cards in our tent and, and drink a bottle of whiskey if we actually catch up to one. And like what you guys are doing is real shit. So that's sort of like the platform for his mindset. Um, yeah, fast forward to last year and trying out the dew point in a more recent model, but then trying out different laminates and things like that with Sitka for, for like many years. And, um, yeah, the process was take this thing on as many hunts as, as you're plan on going on and beat it up. And um, that's basically what I did. I mean, I loved the original dew point. Like I just thought it was like, there's a long evolution with Sickers Reindeer where um, they've used different gore laminates over the years and kind of in the earlier phases used some older gore stuff, um, which was called Paclite, P-A-C-L-I-T-E in their original, um, I think it was called Stormfront Light. This is like 2011, maybe. That was like pretty good, pretty light, just like doesn't have the durability. And not in the sense where like, you're gonna move and it's gonna tear, but just sort of like the long-term like war of attrition that hunting is, which is just like sitting on sharp rock, crawling around, bushwhacking, 
abrading from your pack, sweat, blood, contamination from, um, yeah, all these body oils and things that hunting kind of produces as a messy sport. And the evolution from that kind of went into some more durable, like gore laminates that I've always thought are really awesome. The, the dew point that came out maybe like, I don't know how old that is, six years ago or seven years ago was awesome. Big fan of it. Lacked a little bit of durability in some areas. And they basically like the new dew point, in my opinion, is, is like as, like as close to something that is durable enough to do almost anything with. And I say almost, cause there is people that are hard on gear and should not be using the dew point and light enough that it should always be in your pack right. or truck or side by side, whatever you're hunting out of. Um, I think they did a really good job of like finding that balance. Um, because it's a really fine line to walk it. Um, and I think I wouldn't be able to speak to the technical nature of it as well as I probably should, but a lot of that lies in using that CNIT, which is a type of Gore-Tex that all these like mountaineering brands are using Patagonia and Arctic and like they've been using it for years. And I've got buddies who are ski guides up in Alaska that are like, when is sick going to get seen it? Like, when are they going to get it? And the reality is to take some level of testing to figure out if that's right for hunting. Cause it's not always the same as something like skiing, ski mountaineering, ice climbing, things like that. And, um, when, when they heard about the dew point, they were like, holy shit, man, this is legit. Like there is no other hunting brand doing this. And yeah, I mean, the reality is like, blah, blah, blah. Like I'm just listening out a bunch of shit that, um, is, is the ingredients that go into making something. But like, for me, I've tried this stuff out. It works. Um, I've seen people wear other rain gear and like from other brands and seen it not work like with my own two eyes and like been very comfortable versus person not being comfortable. Um, and when it comes to rain gear, it's just like, man, it's one of those things where it's like, you don't want to, you don't want to test out or find out that what you're using is not right. Um, at the wrong time. And so I'm pretty like bullish on like, man, this screen gear is great. The sort of downside would be it's expensive. So if you can't afford it, totally get it. But um, it's a buy a nice, buy a twice kind of thing. And um, yeah, it's just like, it's pretty damn good, man. I'll be curious to what you think, but um, it's not going to be, I mean, if you've worn every ring around the sun, it's not going to be Helly Hansen like rubbers yep. <clears throat> in terms of, workwear it's just not it's 13 ounces it's a 13 ounce jacket and a 10 ounce pant like that is actually it's crazy insane it's insane when you think about it i lived in the storm front for a week on my stewart goat hunt this year that yep. shit blew my mind I, I was just like i don't even have any words right now and yeah it's like probably close to 1400 bucks canadian by the time Right. But it's like, I have never worn, and I'm not like, I'm not sponsored in any way, shape or form. Nobody gives me any money. Nothing I have ever worn comes even remotely close to the durability and the waterproofness of that Stormfront system. Now it's on the opposite end of the spectrum. I think if you could do anything you want in the world, you got your Stormfront and you got your dew point. And I cannot come up with yeah. a hunt that could not be satisfied with one or the other. Like I wouldn't go goat hunting with the dew point. And I wouldn't stuff, yeah. uh, you know, a pound and a half or two pounds of Stormfront in my pack for a for a sheep hunt where it may or may not even rain. Yeah, and I like having those two opposite ends of the spectrum. But I think, and, and people who listen to this podcast know I'm really bullish on on Sitka, and like I wore all the other guys first, um, 
And I just think technologically they're just superior. Like I'm not trying to like blow smoke up anybody's ass, but like you just wear the stuff and like the stuff is just better. I don't know what to say. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's like really good to be taken all in a grain of salt. And that's what I said in that gear video that you referenced. And that's what I would say first and why I actually don't love just like giving gear lists because right. it's like, well, that guy's like working with that company or he's sponsored by them. And yeah, what's he going to say? And um, man, I, I'd say anyone that would, would say that about my comments, like you're totally right. I mean, take it with a grain of salt. Um, don't take my word for it. Try it out for yourself. I would say this has been my experience with this product. I actually do know a lot of the people that, that work at a lot of the other companies. Um, I see the gear that they, they wear and the way that they make it. And um, I think that like the way that Sika thinks about things and the way that they invest in like R and D for specifically rain gear is like, is kind of insane. And so um, there might be, I mean, we'll go with whatever brand you want to go with um, whatever fits you, whatever fits your budget, whatever fits your style, whatever company you like, that's totally cool. I would say like, if you're going to drop the dough on rain gear. I would look hard at those um, two pieces of rain gear. I'd look hard at the dew point. And then like you said, the storm front, if you need that level of protection, but reality is most people probably don't. And most yeah. hunts don't dictate that you would need that level of protection. But um, yeah, I think it's good. I think it's good to be taken with a grain of salt. Don't take my word for it. And, uh, it's been my experience and I've seen, like, I've just, I've been on Huntster. I'm like, I got the duct tape wrapped around the tracking pole and I'm like cruising along and I'm looking back at, at my, my buddy and I'm like tearing off pieces of duct tape for him and he's patching his gear together and he's not wearing sick of gear. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Like we're just not having a great time out there. So, um, it's been my experience. It's my, my direct experience from lots of days in the field. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of why they asked me to kind of help do the, uh, do like a little video kind of showing like the year of, of, um, trying to do point out and, and write a little story of the trip that I did last summer with it, with my brother and on his stone sheep hunt. And, uh, I'm like, I will definitely put, you know, my name on it or be associated with it because I do believe in, in, in the dew point. And, um, otherwise I'd be really hard pressed to say like, yeah, let's do it. That sounds good. It's like, I don't, I don't want it. Someone walking me up a cheap show and punching me because they bought the viewpoint and they didn't like it. And that shit will happen. Um, and I'll get punched for another reason. Like that's no problem, but I don't want to get hit because of, uh, someone didn't like the viewpoint. And I think, I think that most people out there, if they buy it, they get it. However, they end up with it. Um, I think they will be pumped on it with the knowledge of this is lightweight hunting, sheep hunting, mountain hunting gear. Um, that's probably like way more durable than you give it credit for just by when you pick it up and then like, see how light it is. Yeah. Okay, man, we're going to wrap things up. I feel like there was a whole bunch of stuff that we didn't get a chance to touch on. And hopefully, you know, some point in the future, maybe after the fall is over and we both got a handful of hunts under our belt, I'd love the opportunity to kind of get you back on at, at some point in the future and, and have another conversation. It's my fault. I rambled. That's okay. That's what, that's, that's the whole purpose. All right, man. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. That was awesome. Yep. Thanks for having me. All right. Cheers, Adam.